Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Dr. Elizabeth Freund Laris is professor and chairman of the Department of Political Science and International Affairs at the University of Mary Washington and author of Politics and Society in Contemporary China. Her research interests concern cross-trade relations, Taiwan's foreign policy, and U.S. policy in the Asia-Pacific. In 2015, Dr. Laris was awarded a Taiwan Fellowship from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to research China's view of U.S. rebalanced policy to the Asia-Pacific. Dr. Laris received a Fulbright Scholarship in 2020 to conduct research in Poland on China's Belt and Road Initiative investments in Central and Eastern Europe. Dr. Laris is the author of three books, as well as more than 25 book chapters and scholarly articles. She regularly offers commentary to international media outlets and online platforms, including CNBC Asia, Indus News, Vietnam News, Courthouse News, The Financial Times, The South China Morning Post, Taiwan Insight, and U.S. Politics and Policy, among others. She is a member of the Board of Directors of the American Association for Chinese Studies and is a member of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Liz, thank you for coming on the podcast. We're absolutely thrilled to have you with us today. Um, one of your areas of specialization is the cross-straits relationship between Taiwan and China. To get things started, could you give us an overview of the state of that relationship? Are we as close to the edge as some analysts suggest? Well, well, we're not close to the edge. We're certainly skirting around it. U.S.-China relations haven't been this chilly since June 4th, 1989, you know, the big difference between now and 30 years ago is a view that China isn't going to morph into some sort of democratic polity along with a liberalized economy. You know, in the 1980s, when I first went to China, both Americans and Chinese were really fascinated with each other, or, or at least positively curious. Um, there was a feeling in the air that China was moving away from the political campaigns and the closed markets of the Mao era but not really knowing where China was going. So there was an opportunity for the US and the West to influence China's political and economic trajectory. You know, 30 years on, we see that low, the CCP, like every Chinese leader you know, before them, prefers a centralized polity and control over the economy, whether it be socialist or capitalist-leaning economy. Now that wouldn't be of concern to the United States, but it's the militarization of this centralized policy that really concerns the U.S. 
You know, we wouldn't care if China was strong, but didn't threaten the U.S. standing in the world, but it does. China has been remarkably successful in building its influence in international organizations, in global markets, diplomatically, its, its economic statecraft, and its military modernization. So, you know, ideologically, we're miles apart. You know, for example, on Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang, you know, even back in the 1980s, the 90s, the U.S. had problems with China trade, Taiwan, and Tibet was the hot issue then, right? So what's changed, right? So back then, two things influenced our calculus. That is, the U.S. was stronger diplomatically, economically, and militarily than China. And there was the thinking that China would change. So 30 years on, we see Marxist-Leninist ideology still drives the party state there. And China's become stronger in all of those three aspects. It's become stronger diplomatically, economically, and militarily. And so, Liz, I'd love to hear what took you to China initially. Um, all of us, uh, Fred and I are China hands as well, and we love hearing uh, you know, even, even tidbits of, of what first piqued your interest. It was the opportunity. I was actually living in Hawaii at the time, and I had the decision, did I want to go to Japan or did I want to go to China? And at the risk of dating myself, um, the United States was actually engaged in a trade war with Japan. We were starting to have testy relations with Japan. China was just opening up. It was new. And I honestly thought, you know what, that would be a good niche for me. I had been working um, as a press secretary on Capitol Hill, and I had kind of exhausted the possibilities there. So I was looking for something else that I wanted to do, and China was just opening up. It was really the beginning years of the, um, the Deng Xiaoping you know, era. And so I thought, you know, if I could learn Chinese, that would be a really good niche for me. And so I went to China and I studied Chinese for a summer and just kind of took it from there. And then I went on, you know, to graduate school and decided to pursue Chinese study. So it started out as like a really pragmatic decision, you know, being in the right place at the right time kind of thing. And then, of course, the more I got into it, the further down that road I walked. That does show quite a bit of foresight. I think in, in the 80s, there was, a, I'd say, a, a relatively modest group of people who had your, your similar thoughts, right? I mean, those of us who came along in, in the 90s and later um, certainly looked, uh, looked to you. We're glad for your, your groundbreaking work, and thanks for, thanks for blazing the trail and making it a little easier for the rest of us. You're welcome. You bring up an excellent point regarding just why China is such a concern. When I have conversations with folks about China, and when certain topics come up, for example, you know, things, the things that are happening in Hong Kong, the things that are happening in Xinjiang, there's often that retort of, well, there's a lot of governments around the world that are doing things that we don't agree with. But in some cases, we have good relationships with, with those governments. But I think you really drove home the point that China presents this combo, if you will, where, yes, there is that problematic character of the, of the government but also the very real challenge that it is making. And I think that's really where why it's such a, such a unique threat, at least in, compared to, to other possible threats that exist. Sort of following that, that line of thought and, and, and focusing on the issue of Taiwan, 
we're definitely hearing a lot about this issue. Um, so perhaps we don't need to talk too much about that. I'd, I'd like to focus on one specific issue, and that is Taiwan's foreign relations. Even, even I think for people that follow Taiwan issues uh, closely, and I and I do, my, my wife is from Taiwan, so so that's that's part of why I, I, I I'm so interested. But but there's other reasons for it as well. But when it comes to to Taiwan's foreign affairs infrastructure, I think for obvious reasons, right? There's just not not as much uh, perhaps that that's visible, and I think it's it's a bit of a a bit of a mystery to many observers. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how Taiwan carries out its foreign policy, and specifically, to, to what extent does the lack of official recognition by all but a, but a handful of countries, to, to what extent does that truly hinder Taiwan as opposed to being simply a reputational or, or, or pride issue? Well, at the risk of sounding like a professor, which I am, um, we need to have a little bit of context, right, to, to get to that answer. So the formal name for the government on Taiwan is actually the Republic of China, which was founded in 1911, officially 1912, following Sun Yat-sen's revolution, you know, on mainland China, which overthrew the last emperor of China and the last dynasty, the Qing dynasty, right? So the Republic of China was a sovereign, independent nation state, which moved to Taiwan during the Chinese Civil War and stayed there, of course, after the Civil War and then the founding of the PRC, the People's Republic of China in 1949. So now, according to the definition of statehood, a state has a bounded territory, a permanent population, and a form of government. So the ROC, the Republic of China, on Taiwan has all of those. I mean, it certainly has a bounded territory, right? The island territory, permanent population. It has a population of nearly 24 million, and it has a form of government. President Tsai Ing-wen, a legislature, its currency, its military legislature, right? So it has all of those. Now, it is questionable, but it is generally accepted that a fourth condition for statehood is recognition by other sovereign independent nation states. And, and here, Taiwan does have about 15 diplomatic partners. Granted, it's not a lot. It's down from where they were about 10 years ago. But they still do have 15. And those 15 diplomatic partners do add legitimacy to Taiwan's claim officially, formally, the ROC's claim that it is a sovereign, independent nation state distinct from the People's Republic, which exists on the mainland and was founded decades after the ROC was founded, right? So the ROC claims it has never been a part of the PRC and is trying to maintain its diplomatic partners, right? So now, while it only has 15 diplomatic partners, what's the importance? Your question is, what's the importance of having the partners or the lack of diplomatic partners? Having diplomatic partners is important for Taiwan's membership and participation in international organizations, where that's where a lot of action happens, right? So its diplomatic partners represent Taiwan in international organizations that require statehood for membership. So Taiwan is not a member of international organizations that require statehood 
because largely because of China, China says ROC is not a sovereign independent nation state. And so those, those international organizations kind of back off on Taiwan membership. However, you know, its lack of official recognition does not stop Taiwan from participating in international organizations that do not require statehood for membership, such as the World Trade Organization, which is huge, and APEC, you know, the Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum. And that's big, obviously, in Asia. So I sincerely doubt that these entities would throw Taiwan out if Taiwan lost its diplomatic partners. Um, but, but you know, we don't want to see that, right? We don't even want to you know, answer that question. But, but Taiwan is an important member of those organizations. You know, Taiwan is one of the world's largest economies for a population of 24 million, which is about the population of the state of Florida. It is the world's 19th largest economy. Sure, it's not one or two, but out of like 200 economies in the world, it's number 19. And perhaps even more important, it is the sixth freest economy in the world. Its economy is even freer than that of the United States. So for, for those reasons, it is important that Taiwan participate, at least in these economic organizations. And it is hard to ignore Taiwan because of, of those characteristics. Just want to follow up and wanted to ask you for, for your views on, on a related subject. When I used to work for the State Department, one of the things that surprised me, I was working mostly on, on Latin American affairs at first, and one of the things that surprised me was the degree to which the U.S. was really encouraging countries that had diplomatic relations with Taiwan to, to official diplomatic relations to, to maintain those. And I think, if anything, that trend has intensified in more recent years. But what I'm talking about was 2003, 2004. So this has been going on for, for a while. Back then, it did strike me as curious, right? Because I thought, well, we don't have official diplomatic relations with Taiwan, and yet we are leaning on other countries to, to maintain those relationships. Would it be fair to say that, in a way, the U.S. is trying to compensate for its own lack of recognition by pushing others to, to keep their relationships uh, official? I think a different way to look at it is the United States is reacting to China's muscle in trying to get Taiwan's diplomatic partners to switch away from Taipei to Beijing. If we go back to the Ma Yingzhou era, that is when um, Ma Yingzhou was president of Taiwan, cross-strait relations were, were good. Things were pretty copacetic. And I believe Taiwan had approximately 30-something, let's round, 30-something diplomatic partners. Now, before the Ma administration, China had been trying to, let's say, poach. Some people say poach. Uh, Taiwan's diplomatic partners uh, tried to use financial leverage to get countries to switch away from Taipei to Beijing. And then Taiwan would have to respond by writing very, very big checks to keep countries, you know, diplomatically aligned with Taiwan. And so under Ma and, and, and the Chinese government during the Ma administration, China called essentially a truce 
with Taiwan and said, you know, if if we can have better cross-strait relations and more integration of the economies, we will not seek to squeeze your diplomatic space by trying to buy off your diplomatic partners. So for the eight years of the Ma Ying-jeou presidency, Taiwan did enjoy the company of many diplomatic partners and was not threatened by them departing and going over to Beijing. But that ended after Tsai Ing-wen was elected president in 2016. And it it's an understatement to say that Tsai Ing-wen and Taiwan and Xi Jinping do not see you know, eye to eye. And so like the truce was off and Taiwan started losing its diplomatic partners again. And the United States was saying, Beijing, you are poaching these partners. You are punishing Taiwan by poaching their diplomatic partners. So under the Trump administration, written into one of our authorization acts was the the, the idea that the United States would actually punish countries that switched away from Taiwan to um, mainland China. You know, whether that's enforceable, um, whether the United States would carry through on this, uh, we haven't we haven't seen it tested. So I, I do think it's doubtful, especially now that there is a new administration, that the United States would follow through on that. But, but you know, you're absolutely right. What what matters the most to Taiwan is U.S. support, and the U.S. shifted recognition from the Republic of China to the PRC in '79. But our biggest support for Taiwan, of course, comes in the form of military aid. So that's kind of like the ace in the hole that Taiwan still has. And that's probably the most important factor, you know, in the Taiwan um, situation. Liz, another one of your areas of expertise is the impact of China's Belt and Road Initiative in Central and Eastern Europe. We would love to hear your general perspectives on the BRI, but also on Central and Eastern Europe generally. How do the economies in CE size up against their Asian counterparts? Well, the economies in Central and Eastern Europe are much smaller than many or all of the provinces in China. Each of the provinces in China have larger economies and much larger populations than most of the countries in Europe. So, you know, individual Eastern and Central European countries, there's no matchup with China itself, and then perhaps with some of the other Asian countries. Now, when you look at Europe as a bloc, a European Union, then it's a different story, right? Because that is a common market. It's more of a common front. When I noticed when I was doing my research, right around last year at this time, I was in Poland and then traveling throughout Central and Eastern Europe doing research on the BRI is, you know, a number of scholars pointed out there's a difference between Chinese investments in Europe and BRI projects. Of course, Chinese investment came first. You know, for example, you may have heard of the 16 plus one. Now it's called 17 plus one. Uh, forum, and that is the you know 17 Central Eastern European countries plus China engaging in economic cooperation, 
trade, investment, economic statecraft, things of that nature. This was rolled out around the year 2012 to great fanfare and great expectations. But when I was in Europe, and it was right before COVID just raged throughout Europe, there was already this sense of you know, promise fatigue or that China wasn't really carrying through on its investments in Central and Eastern Europe. And some of those investments that they did carry through on were a tremendous disappointment. You know, one example was China had bid on completion of a highway in Poland. Well, you know, initially it was it was overpriced. Um, then it took uh, forever to complete. As a matter of fact, I don't even know if China completed their portion of it um, because they came in and they made you know promises that we're going to be able to get it done in so much time at a certain cost. And none of those which they fulfilled. So that put Poland on guard. And so when I was doing my research on BRI, there were very few BRI projects in Poland. There was still Chinese investment and trade, but not, not a lot. They, they weren't embracing BRI projects. Now, the BRI concept itself, I have to admit, is really brilliant. It's, it's multi-purpose. It expands markets for Chinese goods, especially its overland belt from China and you know, across through Central Asia um, and, and into Europe. It creates ports for trade and possibly for the military. You know, that's something else U.S. is concerned about. It certainly enhances China's diplomatic outreach and its soft power, right? You know, it makes China look influential. It's strong. It's, it's rich. It helps countries that either couldn't afford or didn't have the expertise to build world-class infrastructure or first world countries couldn't be bothered building infrastructure, right? Shuns maybe some projects in some of these countries. And it also supports China's state-owned enterprises. You know, it keeps them, you know, it, it, I should say it empowers them because they're very strong now, right? 10 of the world's largest construction companies are Chinese. It supports Chinese banking because for most of these projects, Countries are borrowing from Chinese banks to pay China to pay Chinese companies to carry out these projects, right? So it's 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 all very well linked. So it appears, right, that that BRI projects are a win-win. But and here's the big caveat, right? You know, um, they're overpriced. So projects are largely overpriced due to non-competitive bids, right? That's a condition that China puts on BRI projects: is you're not going to send this out for competitive bid, which violates, by the way, European Union. Um, you know, regulations. Um, the contracts are not transparent. You know, once once they're written up, they're, they're not open to the public. And as you probably know, they create a lot of debt for middle income and, and poorer countries. So, you know, getting back to my original point, in Europe, BRI has been really disappointing overall, right? And, um, and, and one example I'll give you is um, the Belgrade to Budapest railway. And that's part of the the link of the BRI from the um, Port of Piraeus down in Greece, right, and up through Serbia, and then up into Budapest in Hungary. Well, it's wildly expensive. Just the Hungarian part is going to be $3 billion. That's three with a B, billion dollars plus interest. It's to be built with the help of a 20-year Chinese loan, right? which will cover about 85% of the cost. 
the financial details have been classified, are going to be classified for 10 years. So the European Union, of course, got wind of this and launched an infringement procedure against Hungary for the lack of transparency in the bid. And the Hungarian public is, is of course, very aware of the expense of this. And the Hungarian government is going to have to float bonds for this. So, you know, that's, that's, a, that's just one example of one project that has run into a lot of problems there. And so this, the VRI was rolled out as this gleaming project and they're seeing, you know, it's, it's a bit tarnished in reality. And I'm always curious when we talk about Eastern Europe, about how Russia views China's influence in its backyard. So do you have any thoughts on that? You know, there's been a lot in the media about Russia and China cooperation, rapprochement. But, you know, historically, China and Russia don't see eye to eye. And Russia historically has been very nervous about Russia. Uh, Russia has been nervous about China, China nervous about Russia. And so, you know, in the Western media, I would say, I would say the Chinese media, like particularly like global, global times, um, is going to portray this as a great, you know, win-win kind of situation. But there's a lot of suspicion on both sides. And when you look at Central and Eastern Europe, you need to consider like, what are Russia's interests in Central and Eastern Europe? Certainly security interest. We know that Putin over in Moscow is still very, very concerned about security. China doesn't have that same interest in Central and Eastern Europe, and is certainly not as concerned about Russia's security, right? So what's China's interest in Europe? It's mostly investments. And, and Russia certainly invests in Europe, but it doesn't look like China is stepping on the toes of Russian investment. You know, if there's any concern, it would be maybe that Chinese goods would come in and take Russia's market share in Central and Eastern Europe. But I don't see, honestly, a lot of cooperation between the two because they just don't have the same agenda that would link them together. So I think there still is daylight between them. And I think perhaps that daylight between China and Russia is probably good for you know the security and the fortunes of Central and Eastern Europe. No, that, that's fascinating. One, one takeaway from my time in China was that as much as, like you said, the, the official press likes to highlight the warm, fuzzy relation between uh, Russia and China, certainly at the ground level, the, the Chinese know the Russians well, right? They're, they're well aware of, of all the history there. And I, and they, I got the feeling that they might see some, some opportunities to, to band together to some degree, but I don't think there's any any illusions as to the true character of, of, of Russia and the challenges it presents. And I imagine, I've never been to Russia, but I imagine that it's very similar on the other side. These are countries with uh, deep, long histories, right? So they, they know exactly who they're, who they're dealing with. Turning once again to, to China, looking at the crystal ball is always uh, a dangerous uh, exercise. And of course, if we knew exactly what was going to happen in China in 10 years, we'd probably be doing different things uh, at the moment. But that said, I'd like to, I'd like to ask you for, for your views 
definitely all of the angst really that that here in the United States and elsewhere in the world we feel towards China, there's a sort of general sense of, of what might happen. If we could perhaps go a step further and, and in, in general terms at least, try to start making some general predictions as to how things are, are going to look. There's a lot of um, potential developments that, that, that can be scary in some cases, but looking at it perhaps in a somewhat sober way, where, where do you see China in, in, say, 10 years? I see China in 10 years stronger and stronger. There's a lot of momentum in China just looking at the economic scene and the vibe in the Chinese cities, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of drive. There's a lot of innovation there. There's a lot of energy. Economic-wise, the Made in China 2025 program and the Thousand Talents program will have tremendous influence in helping to drive the Chinese economy. The Made in China 2025 program is Xi Jinping's plan to boost indigenous innovation. Xi Jinping wants China to be integrated into the world economy to the extent that the world relies on the Chinese economy either for its goods or for it being a central part of the supply chain. However, Xi Jinping does not want China to be dependent on the world. And so Xi Jinping is very much aware of the US and the West's tendency to impose sanctions for various reasons. It might be trade sanctions, might be because of you know, human rights abuses, you know, in China. And so Xi Jinping believes that China's economic security and probably its national security is best served by building, innovating, inventing its own technology, artificial intelligence, bits and pieces, you know, for machinery. So that's what this Made in, 20, uh, Made in China 2025 program is, not to rely so much on Western technology, not to rely on, you know, the, the software, the guts, the pieces from other countries to be able to do it themselves. And so imagine you've got like thousands, millions, I should say, of people over there where the government is saying, I want you to invent this. I want you to innovate this. And, and they are benefiting from being latecomers, right? That is, they're benefiting from all of the Western technology that came with the Western businesses there. And so they have that benefit. They've already picked the low-hanging fruit, right? Now, now they're moving up the market to invent that themselves so that they can compete with the West and then beat the West out in technology. The Thousand Talents program is also another Chinese program to essentially recruit Chinese people who work and, and, and study and work abroad 
to bring their knowledge back to China. You know, much of it legally, but they're not going to turn down gains that come illegally. Let's say you know a flash drive, something you know um, downloaded, intellectual property downloaded to a flash drive that is brought over to China. That's also part of the Thousand Talents program. Okay, so there's lots of momentum there until until things start to slow down due to demographics, and we and we do see actually a shrinking workforce, but we don't see it hitting the Chinese economy hard just yet. 10 years out, you will have a different demographic picture. So I think in these 10 years, there's going to be a lot of momentum. And I think China is going to be stronger. You could do a lot in 10 years, right? And they could do amazing things in 10 years. So, you know, and, and even like during these 10 years, even if the United States continues to have chilly relations with China, imposes sanctions on China. There are other countries that are there. Germany is in China. Sweden is China. France is in China. Japan. Everyone is there. Just even like a cursory look at LinkedIn indicates, you know, these young, relatively young people there saying, you know, just open this new factory, just just took, you know, leadership of this new project there. And they're and they're inspired to work in China. So it still is a place of opportunity for Europeans, Americans, Africans in China. Now, 10 years out, the scary part is its its military modernization, particularly the Navy, particularly its naval modernization. China is building a peer navy that is a peer to the United States Navy. China now has a larger navy than the US. And if it continues at its current rates, China will have more than 400 ships and 100 submarines by 2035. I bet you, and that's a conservative figure, right? China's Navy, when I first went to China, could be characterized or described as a bucket of bolts, right? Now, 70% of China's Navy is considered to be modern, up 50% from just 10 years ago, right? It's also producing larger ships Larger ships are more capable of accommodating advanced armaments and onboard systems. You know, for example, China has anti-ship missiles, right? The anti-ship ballistic missiles, which have been dubbed carrier killers. And they are the best. They are the best. Um, China has two aircraft carriers. No way do they match in scale or technology. The U.S. aircraft carriers and the new Ford-class carriers. But China has a third one in design, and it's a mega carrier, it's big. You know, carriers indicate forward projection of power, forward presence. You don't use an aircraft carrier in your Coast Guard for you know, defense of your coast. This indicates that China aspires to a blue water Navy, it aspires to a global Navy. You know, in fact, you know, Chinese military documents state point blank that China wants to have a global Navy by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the PRC. And so, and, and of course, you know, their, their, their agenda is to have hegemonic power, right? The, the, the undue influence, the unquestioned influence in the Asia Pacific. Since World War II, the United States has been the maritime hegemon right, in the Asia Pacific. And so China wants to replace the United States as the most influential maritime power in the Asia Pacific. It doesn't necessarily say, yeah, we're going to shove 
the U.S. out. I'm sure they would love to do that. But no, no, they really want to have the preponderance of power in the Asia Pacific. And all of that, I said nothing about China's cyber capabilities. Uh, you know, China's cyber, cyber capabilities are formidable as well. That would be a whole nother podcast. And also note that space and the Arctic are the new frontiers in the security domain. And again, that would have to be a whole nother conversation. But that is something to keep our eyes on. There's quite a few places where we could go from there. What advice do you have for persons who are interested in careers related to foreign affairs? There are innumerable things that people can do in foreign affairs, perhaps more than any you know, time in history. As you mentioned, you know, the Foreign Service State Department is only one path. There's the military and uh, you know, military, they have um, you know, attaches around the world. Um, anyone in the military probably has the chance, you know, to, to travel quite a bit with the military. Businesses are all over the place. American businesses abroad, multinational, international businesses, foreign businesses abroad. Um, academia, obviously, is another way, uh, not just to do research abroad, but to teach abroad. Uh, travel, travel and hospitality, uh, travel agents, agencies, uh, you know, bringing groups, you know, abroad, a travel host. There's also um, an unbelievable number of international organizations. You know, people think, oh, the UN, right? You know, kids, oh, I want to be a translator at the UN. Um, but there's the World Trade Organization, World Health Organization. There's NATO headquarters. There are the various courts in Brussels and Geneva. And there are non-governmental organizations. And very often, I recommend my students to look at the NGOs because there are so many of them. And they are all over the world. So then the question is, how do you prepare, right? How do you prepare for a career in foreign affairs, international relations, or international affairs? And so, you know, I recommend that my students be broadly educated, that they know politics, society, economics, and, and history, and get a very, very broad, as broad um, a, an understanding possible of all of those. You know, history is important because it gives you the context for understanding current events. Uh, travel is key. You know, V.S. Naipaul had, had a really good um, quote. He had said that to travel is to discover that anyone is, everyone is wrong about other countries. So it's, you know, it's really hard to get out of the U.S. Western mindset because that's our environment. We are products of our environment and our education. But it's really important to try to understand where people from other countries are coming from. You don't have to agree, but it really helps to understand. So, you know, I would recommend people take advantage of study abroad, uh, perhaps you know, when they're in college or a gap year. Uh, probably an immersion language abroad would be very helpful. And if people can't do that, you know, just go abroad and sit in your relatives' kitchens. You're going to learn just by being in another culture. You'll learn a lot just by getting beyond the boundaries of the United States. You bring up excellent points. And I, I would specifically like to, to address one of those alternatives that, that you mentioned. Um, when I was working in Guangzhou, one of my best friends was a manager at the at the local Marriott. And his experience really opened my eyes to just how international 
uh, a career in hospitality can be. And, and in fact, I remember thinking of how similar his career track and that of other hoteliers was to to my own. Um, they would they would have um, postings for a few years in one country, and then in some cases would be would be transferred to other places. Uh, every once in a while, they they might have a chance to uh, cycle back to to headquarters. Um, but I guess the the ultimate point is that there are many ways, uh, unexpected in some cases, of having uh, an internationally oriented career. We usually end our podcasts asking our guests for recommendations, but today I want to switch things up a little bit, and that's because I really want to hear about your book. So I'm going to take the liberty of making that one of your recommendations, but please tell us more about the book and the subjects it covers. Yeah, the book is really a culmination of decades of observing China and studying and living in China. The book offers a quick you know, look at China's history. China's got 5,000 years of history. I leave most of that to the historians. But it offers history, again, so you understand the political context today. You have to understand something about China's history to understand something about China's politics. So it begins there, and then it takes the reader through uh, the Mao years, the roller coaster ride of the Mao years, and then the Deng's reforms, Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms. But the bulk of the book concentrates on China during Xi Jinping's regime. You know, he came to power in 2012. And, you know, you can say that Mao carried out the first revolution in China. The first Chinese revolution was overthrowing the nationalist regime, pretty much booting out the foreigners and establishing the PRC in 1949. Deng Xiaoping ushered in the second revolution. And that is when the Chinese Communist Party jettisoned socialism for some form of state Capitalism. So now you have capitalist communists or communist capitalists. I do believe that Xi Jinping is ushering in a third revolution. It is a technological revolution. It is China gone global. It is China gone powerful, both economically and militarily. So this book traces the trajectory from the rise of Xi Jinping and you know beyond like the political institutions and the changes to the constitution various policies whether they be social policy um, military policy economic policy policy in the arts population policy it covers quite a bit in really less than 300 pages so it is very readable it is not merely tailored to, let's say, an undergraduate who's interested in China. It's accessible to people who really know nothing about China. They're going to get a lot out of it. But also, it'll be of value to people who know quite a bit about China because it has these interesting nuggets all throughout it that comes from my observations from being on the ground in China for three decades. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to to checking that out. Jonathan, what about you? 
Today, I'm recommending a China 2021 Trends white paper by China Skinny. I think I've mentioned them before. They are uh, a company that keeps great pace with all of the retail uh, consumer trends in China. Uh, I get their, I think their newsletter comes out weekly. And uh, I always like to peruse it just to see what's going on. They do a very deep analysis into market trends on the consumer side in China every week. And then this 2021 trends white paper that they put out, I think at the end of, of 2020, or early 2021, uh, is looking and forecasting ahead. So to the extent that you are involved in China e-commerce, anything related to China consumers, I recommend that you check this out uh, in its entirety. You can find that. I'll give you the link quick. It's If you just Google China skinny, China 21 trends, you'll find it. And we'll also have the link in the uh, in the blog post that accompanies this. Fred, what about you? My recommendation is also related to China, but it is a much less formal one. There is a Twitter handle called The Relevant Organs, uh, and The Relevant Organs uh, refers to a, a formal name sometimes used in uh, official Chinese speak to talk about uh, government departments and agencies. Um, and, and The Relevant Organs I find to be one of the best parody accounts out there, they essentially um, pretend to be a, a, a spokesperson of some sort for uh, for the Chinese uh, authorities, and it is really, really well done. It's very clear that whoever is behind the the handle um, knows China very well and is has quite a bit of wit, quite a bit of, of intelligence. I sincerely hope that I have the, the opportunity to meet them at, at some point. So if you're on Twitter, uh, the relevant organs, if you're not on Twitter, this is the sort of content, uh, and there's not a lot of it, but this is the sort of content that should make you consider getting an account, even if you don't tweet yourself, just to read some of the really good stuff that some people are putting out there. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Really, really enjoyed our conversation and certainly hope that we can have you again before too long and discuss the book. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.